Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, my name is Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. My guest today is Mike Bennett, the CEO of Z Energy, the fuel distribution company in New Zealand, over 40% market share. But although Mike leads a company which distributes fossil fuels, he's also a climate leader. In 2018, he set up something called the Climate Leadership Coalition, which now numbers over 100 CEOs of New Zealand businesses, bringing them together to take a stand, to make pledges, to sign statements, signifying their determination to deal with CO2 emissions so that New Zealand can be on track to meet its 2050 net zero commitments. It's a story of leadership. He didn't need to do that, but he decided to do that nevertheless. And we're going to hear about his reasonings and how he went about it. Please welcome Mike Bennett. Mike, good evening. Hello. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm really good. Really good. All the better for seeing you. Ah, you cheat, you're a flatterer. <laughs> well, I know it's some ungodly hour of the morning in uh, in New Zealand, or it's some, uh, at least it should be, presumably it's early morning. Uh, it's actually 8.30, so it's it's fine. Oh, I've not, been up for hours. So not not so bad, not so bad. And you'll have to forgive me because um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm celebrating because we finished a, a pretty substantial piece of work on electric ferries in Latin America for the, uh, the Inter-American Development Bank. Um, that's been a lot of work. And so uh, I'm having a, a quiet beer here in the evening. And uh, what a pleasure to talk to you at the same time. Okay, well, the best I can offer up is a, uh, is a smoothie. <laughs> so... <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure if it was uh, evening there, you'd be having a glass of wine and I'd be doing the smoothie. Um, so you've just had um, the, uh, an election and uh, Jacinda's been <clears throat> re-elected. So um, are there going to be any major changes in, in energy policy, anything that you, that, that's, that's uh, going to happen as a result of that? Or is it kind of more, more like continuity? I think it's, it's probably a little bit of both. So something in between. The, the previous government was a coalition government, and there was a little bit of a handbrake from one of the coalition partners. And so that handbrake is no longer there. The government have an outright majority. They formed a cooperation agreement with the Green Party, so yeah, that indicates that you know, climate change, for example, would be a very important consideration. So I think, if anything, they no new ideas, but perhaps the momentum to get after those ideas a lot quicker or sooner, including including some um, reasonably controversial, well, not so much controversial, but um, challenging things like uh, pumped hydro, for example. Oh, right. Yes, that is. Well, it's not. Hydro has an interesting history in terms of controversy. Um, but, mm. um, you know, maybe we'll come back to because I mean, the, the urgent thing and the thing that everybody's looking at New Zealand for right now is, of course, um, the COVID response, which appears to have mm. been um, much better than um, than certainly most Western countries. And there's a number of countries in, well, I don't know whether you count, you know, New Zealand as an Asian country. Asia seems to be doing better than, than Europe and yes. uh, the Americas. Um, how is that uh, going at the moment? Yeah, going really well, uh, really well being uh, 
our economy in general is doing much better than most people forecasted six or nine months ago. Uh, obviously, there's some pockets of the economy that are struggling, you know, as you'd expect, sort of international tourism uh, to be a good example of that. And yeah, we are fortunate that we're an island nation. We could pretty well shut the doors. Uh, only returning New Zealanders could fly into the country. Um, and we have a good, a reasonably good quarantine uh, control process underway uh, for people who do come in. So a little bit of luck and a little bit of good management, I think, has enabled us to not have to fight surges and a generally compliant culture. So it's interesting how you described us as a little bit Western and perhaps Asian. I think yeah. many Asian countries put community above family or individual, whereas perhaps the, dare I say it, the more American model is individual first, family second, country third. I think New Zealand's a little bit um, bit different to that, where we've been certainly um, in the initial rounds willing to sacrifice personal things for the good of the of the community. I think when you, if we were in a situation like the UK, when you're being asked to do that two or three times in a row, then I think, frankly, New Zealanders' patience would run out. Now, uh, the the person who introduced you and me, um, Roger Dennis, I had him on cleaning mm. up one of the early shows. I'm not sure which number it was. I think it might have been number eight. It was around then, and um, and he had worked on pandemic preparation plans for New Zealand. But what he basically said was, we were lucky. Um, he said mm. that all his attempts to prepare from 2015 onwards, that was not, and, and to, you know, to, to, to raise the, the awareness amongst uh, government and others, he said that was not why it went well. Um, there was a lot of luck involved. Would you, would you concur? Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, absolutely. And some of that luck is simply, in when we went into lockdown, if we had to lift that two more weeks, yeah, we were only three weeks behind the Italy curve at the time we went into lockdown. So what that implies is if we had not have gone into lockdown, we would have looked like Italy three weeks later. So I think that there's a, I don't necessarily call that luck, but that's a tough decision for government to make uh, to basically lock up the community in a way that we have never had before. So I think yeah, this, this pandemic, it was a matter of days, actually, between a good call yeah. and a bad call. And, and I remember when the Chinese government locked down Wuhan. And we all said, oh, well, you could never do that here. You could never do that here. You just never get away with it. And of course, we sort of waited, waited, and then sure enough, we had to. Um, so what, you know, what our society puts up with seems to change fairly, you know, fluidly, fairly rapidly in this sort of situation. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. There's some research that I, I get to see every month and it was talking about how many New Zealanders were still fearful of catching the virus. And at the time we came out of our, our higher alert level, so we're almost you know, back to the, the next normal, there was still 37% of people concerned about catching the virus. And you go like, wow, if that's happening in New Zealand, what is it like in Europe, in America, uh, in you know, India, uh, for example? If you know, ours was basically gone, you know, nearly 100 days of no community transmissions, or, or and you go, well, over a third of the population are still worried about catching the virus. Yes, and and we're sort of in a way we we headed in the other direction. People stopped worrying about it when perhaps they should have been more worried. And now here we are in a second lockdown. And I suspect the next bit of social uh, research, maybe you'll see as well, is whether people will actually want to take the va the uh, vaccine, which apparently works. But will people mm. actually want to take it? Will they want the other people to take it and then benefit from the herd immunity? Um, I don't think this is over yet in terms of odd and irrational reactions from, from the public. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, there's 
I guess you could use all the models you want to in the world about how people would respond to this sort of stuff. Uh, because there are so many other dynamics at play at the same time, I think the US is a good example of that. You know, COVID has clearly affected the election and then the post-election activities um, are not necessarily predictable either. And they either exaggerate or diminish what is happening with COVID. Yes, indeed. And well, we're, we're all still um, nearly sure, but not quite sure as we film this, um, whether we'll have President Biden taking up the reins and, you know, having his COVID plan, which seems a little more coherent mm. than what they have to date. Okay, so, so Mike, you yourself as CEO of Z Energy um, had to go through a process of responding very rapidly, turning on a dime for uh, when COVID hit. Um, for the for the audience, could you just give a very quick thumbnail of what Z Energy does? Most of them probably not that familiar with it, um, but the very quick version. And then, how did you ramp through the gears of responding to COVID? Yeah, sure. So we are a classical downstream oil company. Uh, we sell fossil fuels. We have a interest in a refining company here in New Zealand. And then we buy crude and process it. We bring in imported products to sell to our customers. And we're classical in that sense. We have a traditional service station channel and we supply to all the various people who would use our products, say what I loosely describe as boats, planes, trucks, trains, and tractors. So we're across all sectors of the economy in terms of how people use um, petroleum products. Uh, we're a large company in a New Zealand context. We've got about a 40% market share. So we're, we're substantial and we are effectively the, the large New Zealand company. We're a public company, majority New Zealand owned, and we compete against the likes of your BP and ExxonMobil, for example. In terms of the crisis itself, uh, we're lucky as a company that's in the industry that we are, we practice uh, crisis management a lot, either because it's, it happens for real, like a supply outage, um, or we drill on, a, on an annual basis. Um, and because of that, we actually stood up our crisis management team in the last week of January, where there were some indications that maybe suggested something was going to happen. Uh, we dusted off our 2013 pandemic plan and so by the time New Zealand actually went into its first formal lockdown in the last week of March, we'd already been on the go with our crisis management team for you know, six to eight weeks. And we'd already developed what we call treatment plans. How will we run our company in the event of these different scenarios playing out? So for us, um, a little bit of good luck and a little bit of good management enabled us to be very, very well prepared when New Zealand went into that uh, lockdown in terms of our operational activities, as well as considering what that meant for the financial resilience of the company as well. You know, when revenues dropped by 80 to 85%, that's pretty severe. Oh. And, and just for clarity, when you say um, the annual drill, I mean, just, you know, just for, so the audience is 100% sure, um, you, don't, you meant by drill as in going through, uh, going through drills, going through preparations, um, uh, rather than drilling, because you're a downstream only company, you only distribute and sell, or you do, you have some ownership of the refinery, but other than that, you're not upstream at all, just to clarify for the audience. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, drill in the sense of practice. And yes. we have two types of uh, practice exercises we run. One would be what we would call a desktop, where we would actually talk through what we would do as a scenario unfolded. And the other one is a real scenario where we would get people playing certain roles from the outside. We would uh, have real media interviewing us and everything would be happening in real time. And we may run that scenario for a whole day, whereas we could effectively run a six week scenario through a desktop exercise in sort of half a day, just by talking about what we would do rather than actually doing it. And in retrospect, how good was your 2013 pandemic plan? 
uh, was good to start with. Yeah, what we what we learned was, uh, I think in any any actual thing, any actual event is often different to the scenarios you plan, and and it's often good to use scenarios because that gives you quite a wide range of potential outcomes for which you you can plan. So what we found was things were a little bit different. Who would have thought we would lock down the country, for example? Um, who would have thought that um, we're in a situation where our revenues were down by 85%? We thought of all the obvious things that it might be difficult for people to come to work, so we need to be able to work effectively from home and, and have technology to support that. We knew we would have some form of customer disruption. We equally didn't necessarily think that the world would be operating in a similar mode at the same time, at the same scale. We're, Many countries were going into lockdown. Uh, you might be able to get physically crude and refined products supply, but actually how do you deal with a boat that comes in from overseas into your New Zealand port where you're effectively locked down, yet your staff are going to have a face-to-face -face interaction with someone on a ship who may have come from a, another country that had you know, lots of cases, whereas New Zealand at that stage had very, very few. Yes, and the, what I talked about with uh, Roger Dennis was um, whether you can plan or whether you can, whether, you know, which is better, planning or agility? And it sounds like you started with mm. a plan, but pretty quickly flipped into agility mode. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And, and one of the bits of planning that we did, we actually got Roger to come in and help us. And we planned, because um, I think planning and agility go together. We planned around four different and distinct scenarios. So once it, it looked like it was game on, so to speak, and our 2030 plans were insufficient, we said, well, actually, what, how could it play out? Some sort of mild, uh, easy, easy response or something particularly severe for an extended period of time. So sort of a classic two by two matrix that we worked within. And that was, again, very, very helpful to us because depending on your outlook on life, and I'm a glass half full person, it's very easy for your planning to reflect your personal values rather than actually what might happen and how could you prepare for that? And Zed's a generally optimistic company. So if anything, when things get tough, we tend to think, oh, it'll be okay. We'll find a way to work through that. Whereas Roger's discipline helped us go, actually, this could be particularly severe. And what would that look like? How would that particularly challenge us as a company? Right, now at this point, um the audience is probably thinking this is absolutely fascinating how a senior leader deals with something like a pandemic but um but but why is michael talking to somebody who fundamentally distributes uh you know uh, fossil fuel products and of course the backdrop to all of this is that you are also dealing with um the transition of the new zealand economy mm -hmm. which now uh, your your pm has been very clear is going to transition 100% and completely and also the more global uh, issue around net zero and uh, the climate response. And so I think, you know, let, let, let's move on and talk about some of those issues because um, mm. I was very struck. You know, I met you, I came down to New Zealand uh, in June of 2019. It was my first trip. Wasn't quite sure what to expect from New Zealand. Was enormously overwhelmed by the, you know, with the, with the wonderful uh, country. But I was also enormously impressed by you and your team and how you were thinking about those issues uh, because you could have quite easily simply said, well, you know, there aren't any electric cars in New Zealand, you know, rounding to the nearest, you know, 0.1%, zero. Uh, yeah. They're not going to get here quickly. And we don't need to worry about decarbonisation. Everybody is simply, frankly, you know, there's nothing, they can't do without us. And so they're going to have to live with us. Mm. But you didn't do that. Um, 
talk us through where, where are you as a company? And then we'll get on to some of your engagement with broader business environment and society uh, on the climate issue. But where are you with it as, as Z Energy, as a fossil fuel distribution company by DNA? How are you dealing with the transition? Yeah, I'd actually, I, I won't answer the question directly. I think it's important to go back a little bit in time, if, if I could, Michael. Uh, we sure. came, we bought the assets off Shell back in April 2010, so quite a long time ago now. And in November 2010, we published what we called our sustainability stand. Not a policy, but a stand. It's something we stood for. And, and again, language is quite important in a company like Z. And within that stand, we'd painted a context for ourselves. And at one level, there's a given context for a company like us, which is uh, we sell fossil fuels and the world needs lots of it. It's, it's again, 10 years ago, it's very difficult to think about a future without fossil fuels. Um, we're a very, very large uh, company. Um, you know, the average car in New Zealand is 14 years old, blah, blah, blah. So there's a whole lot of stuff that was in the given context that I think is implied in your question that we could simply have said, well, actually it's all too hard. Let's just go with the flow. However, we recognize that you know, the role of senior leaders is to design uh, context rather than an event content. So we said, actually, what would our generated context be? Well, our generated context would be that uh, Z could support change in New Zealand on a scale that few companies in New Zealand have the opportunity to do. That we could be move, and then the quote we use is move from being in the middle of the problem to being at the heart of the solution. That we could, yeah, through the eyes of our customers, be incredibly customer responsive and uh, responsive to the broader stakeholder set by acknowledging the problem of climate change, yeah, because the science is pretty clear, you know, 10 years ago, that actually this does need to be resolved and it's an intergenerational issues. And again, I could go on. So there's something around just not simply accepting the given context, which is, you know, we're a large company, we should give our cash back to our shareholders as quickly as we can, versus actually we could do a lot more here. And frankly, if we don't engage in this, the transition that New Zealand needs will be slowed down because yeah, we're such a large player within the market. And so you were having that conversation in 2010 when you first uh, were brought in uh, to run Z Energy. Yeah, that's correct. I, my last job was in Asia. I was, I was working in Singapore, but I had responsibility for Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East and all of Asia Pacific. So this, I got to see a lot of stuff. I, this, this would have yeah, with BP, BP, yeah. Right. Yeah, and I used to go to America yeah, regularly and, and, the, and Europe. And what I observed just uh, prior to the global financial crisis is a real uh, examples of leadership, particularly from Europe, around dealing with climate change. And what I noticed is that when the global financial crisis came along, all of that stopped. And again, for very, very obvious reasons. And I can recall coming back to New Zealand with that in my mind. I also looked at New Zealand having not lived here for 17 years and thought, gosh, was it always like this or am I noticing it's not quite as clean and green as I remember? So I had, I had those two things in my mind. And then when I, when I came into the company, I remember uh, sitting with one of our senior guys and saying, uh, yeah, it's not on the agenda right now, but sustainability in its broader sense is going to be the next big thing. And I said, I reckon by 2015 or 16, it will be the next big thing, the same way it was in that 2007 period in Europe that got fundamentally disturbed by the global financial crisis. And that really got us into action in 2010 saying, if we do not deal with this, it's a significant risk to our company within the foreseeable future. 
And one question, you were, this was a buyout of the Shell assets um, by presumably a, 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 there was some, there was a leading investor group that did that. And they brought you in then as the executive to run it. Did you have that conversation with them at that time? Did you say, by the way, if you buy these things and if you have, if you have me run it, you better, you, you know, you better be ready for, for me to take this stuff very seriously, not to play a rear guard action, but to, um, to, to be at the heart of a solution. Yeah, broadly, I did. I, I got, uh, yeah, New Zealand's quite a small place. It's almost a village. And I sort of had a bit of a heads up from two or three people saying, you're going to get a phone call. These people are interested in seeing, you know, whether you'd have any capability to add to what they're looking to do. So I'd already had a chance to formulate my thoughts. And I and I recall flying down for what was effectively the job interview. And I, and I had a chat with one of the principals and just asked those sorts of questions. You know, so effectively, what are you up for in, in, in the, the language of the day? And I and they told me what they were up for, which was um, largely a financial metric. And I said, oh, I think we could do better than that. And they said, oh, what do you mean by that? And I I, I mentioned a larger financial metric and that got them particularly interested. Um, but then I talked about some of the other things because you know, I had left BP globally and come back to New Zealand because I wanted to get out of the sector. Yeah, you know, I'd been in it for 25 years. I'd seen a lot of things, you know, good and uh, not so good. And I just had grown tired in terms of, there was a mismatch between my personal values and what I was being asked to do, nothing immoral or, or unethical. And so the last thing I wanted to do was go and run, if you like, another oil company or be part of an oil company. So I feel like my game worth playing was very different when I joined here in uh, 2010 for that very, very reason. If it had been you know, the rear guard action you spoke about, I wouldn't have joined. Right, so, so talk about some of the things that you've been able to do within the company, uh, and then we'll get on to the the role that you've played within the broader business community in New Zealand? Yeah, so what we said is that uh, we acknowledge things like, you know, 90% of carbon emissions for households come from the products that we sell. Yeah, that we have a significant impact on the carbon emissions of uh, our commercial customers, whether it's, you know, jet airlines, uh, shipping companies, uh, et cetera. So with, with that in mind, we said, actually, we had three three very simple goals um, around our sustainability work in the original years. Uh, one was to reduce New Zealand's reliance on uh, fossil fuels, which is kind of weird when that's your core business. And one of the other goals was to uh, reduce the carbon intensity of the products that we sell. Now, again, that, that seems uh, paradoxical. How the heck can you have a core business and hold those things together? And what that required us to do was start to say to ourselves, well, actually, how would we reduce the carbon intensity of our products, which leads you down a, a an alternative fuels path? Or how would we re reduce New Zealand's reliance on fossil fuels, which also takes you down a, another path as well? So we're quite a high volume, low margin business. So if I came to you with a solution, even in the realms of fossil fuels and said, Michael, I found a way for you to use 20% less of our products, but I actually want to charge you a couple of cents a litre more for that. It's economically in your interest to use that technology to reduce your consumption of our products. And my profits, although I'm selling 20% less, would actually double. So we could afford to sell 20% less and put the price up by a smidgen and our profits would double. So that whole trap I think companies get into around, I have to sell more of something to sustain or grow my profits. Again, we generated a context around that that just opened up different possibilities, particularly in how we could use technology 
to get customers to use less of our products or to allow them to use less of our products. And, and this is fascinating because, of course, we're talking here in the, in the jargon about scope three emissions, the, the carbon embodied in your product. Whereas at the same mm. time, now some of the, all of the European oil and gas companies are, you know, grappling with scope three. But at the time they were saying, well, we're going to, re- we're going to reduce or eliminate scope one and scope two, the emissions uh, uh, from our mm. operations but we sort of, in a sense, don't care what we sell. Now they've all moved yes. on from that, but you were doing that around 2015, 20, you say? Yeah, very much so, because the, the, the numbers for us were, our operational emissions at the time were about 50,000 tonnes, but we were selling nearly 10 million tonnes. Right. So yeah, multiple factor, oh. and we're actually carbon neutral. We, uh, we have reduced our emissions over time through all the things you'd think a good company would do, and we offset what we can't reduce through permanent native forests here in New Zealand. Now, that, again, that, that costs us money, but it, we didn't feel like we had the, the right to go to our customers and, if you like, uh, preach on this stuff without being able to say, actually, we've tidied up our own backyard and we want to work with you to tidy up your back garden. And yeah, the quantum was 40,000, know, 50,000 tonnes plays 10 million tonnes. It's very clear where the problem is. Uh, but where we're we going now with the commitments, the net zero commitments of the of the big uh, oil and gas companies, and just for disclosure, I'm an advisor to Equinor, but also you know Shell, Total, Repsol, uh, um, BP. They've all made the similar. Well, they've all made commitments that that are starting to to really constrain them in terms of those scope three emissions. Um, those are going to be some very big numbers of offsets. I mean, you've got you, you know you you've you've covered your mm-hmm. own scope one and two presumably with those native forests in new zealand but not your scope three would, would could you even consider doing scope three emissions as well uh we could do and effectively new zealand does that or we do that on behalf of our customers anyway because new zealand has an emissions trading scheme it is price carbon and and we are required to buy those units um every year so that we are able to, able to settle with the government and say uh, you know our emissions were say 10 million tons and here are 10 million tonnes worth of credits uh, for that. Okay, covering transport that, as well, as because in Europe, of course, it doesn't yet cover transport. Yeah, there are a, a few companies in New Zealand that are excused from the scheme, but otherwise it applies to every sector of the economy. I knew we were going to talk about the dairy industry in one shape or form. Hmm. Yeah, so 50% of New Zealand's emissions, and you include, it's not just carbon here, but all of the emissions that we deem to be unhelpful for the planet's welfare are sitting in our agricultural sector. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have uh, 85% of our power production is already renewable. So New Zealand's uh, challenge and opportunity looks very, very different to, say, countries in Europe. Yes. I don't know if you recall, I got into trouble when I did come down at your, you know, to, to, to visit with you. Um, because I was asked quite late in the visit, you know, was there anything that I was surprised about my first visit to New Zealand? Uh, I was asked by, I think it was Stuff, the, uh, the, the, the mm. media outlet in New Zealand, stuff.nz, and it was a very nice interview. But what was interesting was I said, I said, well, frankly, and to be honest, I had had a similar sort of insight to you, is that I was quite surprised. I thought New Zealand was all glaciers and it was all incredibly clean. And so what I said was, I will tell you, I was surprised that 10% of your uh, country's carbon footprint comes from um, drying milk powder with coal. I said, I'm looking, I mean, it's insane. I mean, it's got to stop, right? 
And so the headline the next day was, you know, UK energy guru says drying coal, drying milk powder with coal is insane and must stop or some words to that effect. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, Fonterra, to their credit, uh, shortly later, but shortly afterwards, I don't know whether I can take credit, um, actually announced they weren't going to do that. They weren't going to build any more coal-fired uh, uh, dryers, mm. but they really need to shut the ones they've got. I mean, that, that's the only, that, you know, that's going to be very challenging. I think that's one of the, that's, uh, that's almost like this paradox or the conundrum that we have is New Zealand, I think, can quite rightly, uh, quite rightly argue or assert, and the data supports it, that we are, um, we are the most fuel efficient farmers in the world. So although it, yeah, the emissions in New Zealand are 50% from the agricultural sector, we're way more efficient than anybody else in how we farm. So should we really be doing anything in New Zealand or should a reason for people to rationalize doing nothing? And the result is nothing improves. What's interesting about net zero is, of course, that there's nowhere to hide. You can be the most efficient, but it doesn't help because you've still mm. got to get to net zero. Um, and, um, and I think New Zealand's in a very interesting position because your two biggest industries are tourism and dairy, both of which uh, have got a very troubled, it's very difficult to know how you get to net zero in those two sectors. Yeah, that's right. And so if anything, there's a lesson here from COVID. So our international tourism sector is pretty well zero right now. So how does the economy adjust to that? Because I don't think that's going to come back that quickly. And it does start to put more at the forefront some of the challenges around if, say, people in Europe chose not to visit New Zealand because they were concerned about their carbon emissions. We've now got a bit of a sense of what our future could look like in a post-COVID world if people started to make those sorts of choices. Well and then when you come back to um, agriculture, yeah, if anything, that has been flattered as a sector during COVID because, of course, we're able to feed ourselves and keep exporting um, at a time when many other countries, industries and, and parts of the economy are not able to be productive. Well, that's right. And, and you can always say for the tourism sector, you can say, well, there'll be, you know, there may be less international tourists arriving, but then, of course, there's also fewer uh, New Zealanders leaving and so you could say well maybe you can sort of eat your own dog food and go and visit well excuse me, that's a terrible analogy I'm sorry I apologize you could go and, and, and visit you know marvelous parts of your country that you might not otherwise visit um, but you do need the export earnings because that doesn't replace the foreign currency mm. coming in so you do need the trade so um Let's move on to your role then more broadly. You were doing this, um, uh, this sort of—I wouldn't say it's a transformation—but you were you were you were uh, addressing the issues of climate risk and your emissions within Z Energy. So there you were at Z Energy around 2015. You were uh, moving the company away from being a sort of part of the problem to part of the solution. Um, what about electric vehicles or? Um, some of the new technologies. There's a lot of discussion, I know, in New Zealand about fuel cells as well. Um, did you build that into your strategic planning? And where are you with that now? Yeah, we certainly did. And things changed really quickly. So back in 2015, sort of EVs were almost like a twinkle in someone's eye. There were obviously examples of those out there. Uh, but it was very easy to rationalise that this will never turn up. And I think like any exponential technology, and I've spent a bit of time in Silicon Valley trying to better understand exponential technologies, it, they always overwhelm until the point that they don't. 
And then you suddenly go, wow, that's where the DAC come from. And of course, it was 10 years in the making. And I think EVs are a great example of that, where even today, New Zealand has about 20,000 EVs, you know, 0.1% of the fleet. The average car in New Zealand is 14 years old. So there's lots of reasons to rationalise that EVs will never be a significant feature of the economy here, which of course is not true. One day will just, it'll sort of just turn up. So for us, EVs was a matter of saying, well, actually, how do we participate in that? Again, rather than have the context being this is a threat that we must avoid at all costs. And so we did just some early experimentation where we put in some charging units. We just want to understand how do customers engage? What are the issues operationally around this? Uh, we spent time both as management and our board traveling around the world trying to better understand other markets. And we felt that Norway was probably the best comparator market to New Zealand. And one of the benefits of being in New Zealand, you, we're always a couple of years behind most things that happen in the world. So for us as a company, that gives us a wonderful opportunity to see how markets like China, California, Norway evolve and then try to understand what would that mean for New Zealand and how would we participate in that transition rather than how would we resist that transition. Yes, although New Zealand does have some specifics. So unlike Norway, um, you're not an oil-producing nation with a huge sort of national trust fund to spend on things. And, and mm. also your cars tend to be brought in secondhand from Japan. So you know, would really have been quite uh, justified in saying, well, we're going to be the last country to be affected, would you not? Yeah, there's lots of structural reasons why we could argue that New Zealand won't be that affected. However, we've got to come back to a, a couple of things, like you've got this tension around, you know, we've signed a Paris Agreement and there are targets, you know, very real ones for 2030 and, and 2050. So every day we don't begin the transition, we almost have to spend twice as many days making up for that. Okay, so um, so you you've 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 um, sort of put your toe in the water around electrification. I mean, it's still not a, a huge trend in New Zealand, although, as you say, I mean these these uh, curves take off very uh, dramatically when they do. Um, but you also um, decided to play a leadership role in New Zealand business in the response to climate. Um, talk us through. Mm. Why did you do that? Did you feel that the government was not leading sufficiently aggressively, or did you? you know, what, what was your thinking at that time? Yeah, for this happened about uh, just over three years ago, uh, actually. So it was just before the, the the past election, and I can recall actually I went and did some stuff um, uh, down at Parliament, and I recall coming out of that meeting incredibly frustrated, which was about me. It wasn't about the people I was meeting, uh, and uh, it was. And I just didn't feel like we had uh, the right level of commitment around this. So and I remember uh, sharing that with... What, so what, you were meeting in Parliament to talk about what? I'd, I'd gone down to Parliament to meet with a bipartisan group um, of, of MPs. And it was one of those uh, classic dinner settings. There a couple of chief executives, a cross-section of Parliament uh, by way of MPs just sort of talking about the sort of things you and I are talking about. Yeah, what are the issues here? How does New Zealand transition? How do we deal with the challenges and the threats in, in that transition? And it was, a, it was a useful conversation, but I recall coming out of there saying, gosh, I don't feel like I've really moved the ball down the field. Yeah, it was one of those nice conversations rather than a conversation that makes a difference. And I recall ex expressing that or sharing that concern with um, another chief executive. And then it just dawned upon us that actually, we're not alone in this. And so rather than each of us go into forums like that and have discussions and come out you know, happy, sad, or indifferent, 
what if we got a little bit more of a collective game? So what I did is I reached out, again, in the village of New Zealand, this is quite easy to do. I reached out to about a dozen chief executives who I knew felt strongly in this area and said, look, guys, why don't we, um, and they were, were all guys, why don't we all get to have, why don't we have dinner one night and just talk about how we're feeling about this? And so we, we had a dinner, we talked about how we were feeling. We recognized that rather than us dealing with this individually through our own companies or our own personal networks, we could form more of a collective around it. And we then said, well, actually, what would we, uh, if you like, coalesce around what's the thing that we could stand for so that we very quickly came up with a, what we called our pledge and that's how it started off a dozen companies saying that there was three parts of the pledge this is what we stand for and we invite others to join us and we thought it was really important to get that pledge documented and publicly shared to give uh, parliamentarians or potential um, MPs of whatever political persuasion confidence that certainly there was an element of business that were very very keen to make progress on climate change because so often business gets put in the box called uh, you folks just care about profits and you don't care about social or environmental issues and when we've, if we weren't public about it we felt that we weren't giving the right level of confidence to parties uh, in particular say New Zealand's Conservative Party the more business orientated one uh, that this actually business do care about this and businesses do care about it we now have 103 organizations in that coalition that represents 60% of New Zealand's emissions and about a third of the private sector GDP. So it's a really big chunk of the New Zealand economy who've publicly made commitments around what they will do and be measured on as it relates to climate change. Now you've discovered, you've, you've described that process uh, of calling around the, the, the other CEOs and sort of getting the group coalesced. Um, you've talked about it like um, the, the lone nut, the, uh, I think it's a it's a yes. video from Ted where there's one one guy starts dancing. Mm. Talk us through what what's your lone nut theory of corporate leadership? Yeah, it's great. Um, so if you I want to watch the video and it's well worth it. It's five minutes long. I uh, just Google the dancing guy, and it's effectively the, the, a, a. Say that again. The dancing guy, right? The dancing but, guy. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's a five minute we'll YouTube a, clip. We'll put a link into the show notes. Great. And and what it effectively has somebody uh, filming a person at a, a music festival and they narrate or they talk over what's actually happening. And so as you can imagine at a music festival, there's a bunch of people lying on the ground all pretty chilled out. And all of a sudden, one guy stands up and starts dancing. And I wouldn't describe him as the world's best dancer, but he's up there kind of doing his thing and he's very much in the moment. And then he looks like a lone nut because, of course, he's on his own. And within a short period of time, and perhaps for, if you're watching this, it feels like an eternity, but, but within 30 or 40 seconds, somebody else joins him. And then somebody else joins that person. And within a very, very short period of time, there's a whole movement. Everybody is up dancing. And so the, what the narrator talks about is that the lone nut is just a lone nut until they have their first follower. And when they have their first and second follower, they go from being a lone nut to being a leader. And I think that's a really eloquent way to describe how things happened. Yeah, I felt like a bit of a lone nut, as did indeed some of the other who, who were early to the party. But now we're, you know, we're lauded as providing leadership. Uh, if we hadn't have had those first or fast followers, we would simply be lone nuts. And I just think it takes, um, it's, it's often people give credit to the lone nut as being the person who started something. I actually think it takes more courage to be 
a first follower than a lone nut. That's a very interesting thought. I mean, this is all resonating with me because, you know, 2004, I started a company called New Energy Finance to cover mm -hmm. trends in clean energy, wind, solar, uh, biofuels, and so on. And, you know, I, and my, my friends thought that I was throwing my career away. I mean, they didn't know it was already ruined because of the dot-com boom <laughs> bust and so on. So I had nothing to lose, but I was definitely the lone nut. Um, and, and then you're right, it did feel... Um, well, it felt good when people started, other people started to kind of say, you know, I really like what you're doing and this is really important and gosh, tell me that again because it's, it, it feels central and so on. Um, but I hadn't thought about it in terms of the courage of others to start sort of, you know, demanding that their, that their, that their boss paid for a subscription to new energy finance. Mm. But I guess, yes, that would also have taken a lot of courage. Yes, because I think it's very easy for people to sit on the sidelines. So if you yeah, again stick with the, the metaphor of the dancing guy, if there's this lone nut looking kind of weird in the middle of a music festival, for many, many people, it's so much easier just to either ignore him or to criticize him. And that's why I think, as I said, that lone nuts, they obviously have courage, but they almost, some respects, all due respect to you, you don't always know what you're really getting yourself into. Whereas the first followers, they're able to observe how you're out there on your own. And I think for them to enter into the fray is a much more conscious decision than perhaps one that was driven in the way that yours was. So something else happened that was interesting when I was in my lone nut years, um, that I thought that people who were already on the climate clean energy agenda would hate me because here I was coming mm. in as a McKinsey, Harvard Business School guy, um, and making a big noise in their sector. And I thought they would all be resentful because I was trying to get myself central. And, uh, and they were enormously welcoming because for mm. them, it was validation. Look, here's a guy who could do so many other things with his, with his life and his time, and yet he's on our agenda. And they were so warm and welcoming. Um, and and, and I, you know, I, I, I never forget, never stop being gra grateful to them. Did you have a similar experience of the people who were on the climate agenda? Did they come in and say, well, you know, he's just greenwashing, he's jumping on the bandwagon? Mm. Or did they say, this is just extraordinary. We've got somebody who really doesn't need to do this, but he is doing it. Uh, yes and yes. So there were people who said, this is just an excellent example of collective greenwashing and others who said, wow, that's the sort of leadership that we need. So, so you had both experiences. One of the reasons for the yeah. coalition was simply by having more people be public together. Yes. So for the coalition, simply having everybody together, I think reduces the risk of greenwashing. Because if I was to say it again, if you've got 60% of New Zealand's emissions signed up to a pledge, that's, that's like greenwashing on a you know, galactic scale. It's much more than one company's sort of saying we're going to do some good things and, and window dressing. So there was something around the scale of this really, I think, reduced the, the challenge that's totally understandable around greenwashing. And for that reason, again, a bit like the dancing guy, more people were willing to join the coalition and sign the pledge because what really gets in the way for a lot of people is the, yeah, dare I say it, the personal risk that comes from standing up for something. Yeah, when, when change is required, it, it's, you can hide behind your brand or your company title, but ultimately it's your name out there, it's your photo in the newspaper, it's you being potentially pilloried um, in the press or by, by consumers in general. That's a hard thing, I think, for any leader to do.
in the early days. And sometimes simply holding hands with others is one way to make that feel better for you. Right. And then what you've done, you started with the initial pledge, but you then had on the first anniversary, you had a, a, a strengthened statement and you're now really coalescing around not just two degrees, but one and a half degrees. I mean, it's pretty out there, isn't it? Uh, it, very, it very much is. And again, we have to be careful of this. You don't you want people to join a club and then you say, and now the membership fees keep going up. So we said, actually, we have two generations of club members. We have those that signed the original two degree pledge and then those that are either new and come in at 1.5 or those that were old at two and have, have moved across to the 1.5. So we now have about, if I recall correctly, 16 members that have signed up to the 1.5 degree pledge backed by science-based uh, targets. So it's it's real. And it's really important, I think, that as you go through this change that we are inclusive in how we do it because there is something that comes from the scale of what we're doing if we, at one level, if we made it too hard, it could be too exclusive. And equally, if we make it too easy, it, it doesn't have the teeth um, or the momentum that it really needs to have, given the scale of the problem that we have to resolve here. This is not a time, I think, to be at one level cautious or, or not bold, because the problem is immense. Uh, let's go back to your investors. So you had the initial discussion around 2010 when you came in to, to, to you, you had your job interview and you, you know, for this role. Um, but they've been with you all along, even though you are now a, a public company again. Um, but you've now got maybe they're different investors from the ones in 2010. But how do you keep them on board? And this is a huge question, not just for Z Energy, but it's a question for, you know, and not just for oil and gas companies, but every company that is embarking on some kind of response mm. to climate change has to keep its investors on board. So what conversations have you had? Yeah, they've evolved over time. Uh, what I'd say is when we first talked about this 10 years ago, it was at one level like a neat thing to have. Oh, good for you. Uh, that looks good. Uh, we can see the brand benefits. Uh, yeah, shareholders in those days had, I think, a very myopic focus around what success looked like. And you know, a decade later, whether it be, I think New Zealand again is a bit of a laggard on this, but you see what some of the um, members, I think it's the business roundtable in the US have done in terms of their um, public commitments, um, significant fund managers, um, like the Blackstone guys writing letters to people saying, actually, this is what I expect a good business to be doing. There's a lot more momentum around this nowadays. And it's not just momentum in, in the sense of uh, let's all do good things. It's got real teeth in terms of the, the ESG, the Environmental, Social and Governance scores that companies get, where fund managers now have exclusions uh, around their responsible investing profiles. So I actually think there's a lot more teeth to this. It's still not enough in my personal view, but there's a lot more teeth to this that uh, feeds the decision-making of a hard-nosed investment manager or portfolio manager, as opposed to, oh, this is kind of like a neat thing to do and we, we think it's good for the company's brand, so you'll do better with customers and that'll give me better profits. I think it's evolved. And you know, through things like the uh, TCFD um, disclosures and the moves there, I think this is going to further evolve in a very, dare I say it, exponential way. And the TCFD, for those uh, in the audience, that's the Task Force on Climate Related, uh, what is it? It's a T, ta Task Financial Disclosures. Climate, uh, related Financial Disclosure, that's right. Uh, pioneered yeah. by uh, Mike Bloomberg and Mark Carney. Um, but let me just push you on that because um, uh, Bob Dudley, who has handed over now to uh, Bernard Looney at uh, BP at your old house, 
he mm. said that the problem was that the investors uh, would say, well, can't we do more? I, I'm going to paraphrase what his, the, the quotation from it. You know, could you do more of this clean energy and green energy? Um, to which his question was, sure, I can do a lot more. Would you like me to, are you okay if I cut the dividend? To which their response mm -hmm. was, absolutely not. You need to keep the dividend. So, you know, when the, when it really, when push comes to shove, do you think the investors um, are really, really uh, on board with this? Or do you think that at some point they'll sort of say, well, you know, that's all fine as long as the dividends are still there? Yeah, I, I can't really, I can only speak for our company. And I think if anything, we're, 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 a, we're a relatively small company in a global context. We only exist in New Zealand. So things are perhaps easier for us than a global multinational. I, I do think that, again, I come back to what I said earlier, there's a difference between the given context and the context that you generate. So the given context is you have yield focused investors who want the cash out and would rather have it in their hands to make sensible investments rather than leave it up to management. The generated context can be, well, actually, this is a game worth playing. And actually, let's, over time, churn or evolve our register so that the investors in the company are aligned with the way in which you describe how this could happen. And that that's not just an easy thing to do with some you know, fancy investor relations slides. You've got to have a sound strategy. You've got to have a very good execution plan. You've got to understand what the risks are. I mean, I think it is just good management disciplines and you have to communicate that to your investors. So I think Zed is in that interesting spot right now where we have got to do a better job, frankly, of the management discipline and then communicate that to our investors so that over time, perhaps we evolve our share register to be a match for the company's strategy because there's always a tension there. However, I think the greatest companies in the world are those that are very clear on that management discipline and the strategy and the risk management. And then they get a register as a match to that. And it might mean that for a period of time, perhaps your share price uh, falls or languishes. Um, and if it does, well then you approve out your thesis and then it'll, it'll come back. If you are incapable of proving it out, then frankly, you deserve to have a lower share price. If I was to put my mercenary you know, commercial hat on. Yeah, and it's a you know it, this is a, a microcosm of the issue facing um, the entire oil and gas industry that um, because there are sort of two bookends to the strategy. One could say, well, you know, my strategy is essentially consistent with the science, consistent with 1.5 degrees. I'm simply going to run down the assets and we'll be out of business by 2050. And the other strategy mm. is no, we're going to jump and, and we're going to become something new. But then, of course, you've got to articulate what that something new is. Um, because otherwise the shareholders could just turn around and say, well, frankly, if we want something new, give us the money back and we can go invest in, you know, a, a clean energy company, an Iberdrola or an Ørsted in, in, in Europe or, 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 or next era in the US or, or whatever. Yeah, I think it's a, a really good point. And I think one of the challenges for you know, large incumbents within the energy industry is, What's the right way for you to participate in that change? And I, this is a tension I personally feel, and it's a tension we have inside our company. Should we be early in that change cycle? Should we be investing in, if you like, at one extreme startups, taking an equity position in a startup? Or should we wait for the second or third uh, phase of the cycle and then come in at scale and invest at that stage? And I've got a, a bunch of folks who care in, in our company very deeply about the need to transition to a low carbon future. And of course, they would love us to be doing something today and, and yeah, really demonstrating, dare I say it, leadership over that. That may not be the most sensible thing to do economically. We may be better off, say, with electric vehicles coming in at the second or third phase of that market evolution, 
rather than uh, running the risk of spending a whole lot of money and in some senses being too early to the market. And I can recall my experience when I worked with BP. I think it took BP 25 years for the solar business to be cash positive. Now, there's very few companies in the world that can actually make solar the, you know, their core business and wait 25 years to get the cash back. Whereas I think that's the sort of thing I'd point about. The companies have to be strategic about this. You've got to blend that, if you like, those values and the, and the drivers around the need to address climate change. And you've got to do in a strategic way that plays to your company's yeah. strengths. And of course, the, the BP Solar story is extraordinary because they did BP Solar, ended up selling it. I mean, it was a failure for them. But have now uh, they're now BP Light Source. It's a fantastic business, uh, but it is on the uh, on the sort of building and operating solar, not on the technology. So they had, I mean, in a sense, the, mm. the, the issue there was maybe it was one of timing, but also of strategic entry point. So you've got to get it right. Mm. Uh, no pressure. Mm. So Mike, you've got a lot of things on the go at once. Um, you are uh, making these strategic decisions for Z Energy, but of course you're still dealing with COVID. Um, that pandemic is tragically not over yet, although we've got high hopes that it, that it will be around the world, not just in New Zealand. And you've got this um, strategic uh, engagement with in New Zealand's business, the Climate Leaders Coalition. Um, what does your next year or two look like? Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of balance, actually, Michael. So you, you talked about some elements of that. Uh, I've got to do all of those things well. Yeah, we've had some challenges in our core business in terms of its performance over the last two years. So there's certain element of uh, confidence from our shareholders that has been eroded because of that. And so I think it's it's in one level, it's hard to talk about transitioning to a low carbon future when you know, the core bread and butter of your business isn't going so well. We need to be mindful that we now have a new uh, government in New Zealand that looks like it will be more um, assertive or ambitious around the move to a low carbon or preferably zero carbon future. And I could go on. So I think the thing for me is to continually balance off the long-term and the short-term, to balance off the old with, with the new. Because Z is trying to pull off, at one level, a miracle, I guess, where we we are wanting to be, uh, it's legitimate for us to be what we call the last company standing. We will sell the last litre of fossil fuels in New Zealand at some point in time. And equally, we can be the one that, that leads the transition yeah, through the use of biofuels, hydrogen and electrons to this low zero carbon future. That's what we call options. So we, we work very hard and my background teaches me to try to keep options as live for as long as you can and preferably free options. So we want to have that last company standing option strategically and you know, generate cash run an extremely disciplined core business that allows us to have the choices around uh, taking some cash and investing it in that transition or going back to very confident shareholders or shareholders who are confident in our business and saying, actually, we will trust you guys with a big lump of money to invest in hydrogen infrastructure or to, you know, to be a lead player in the electrification of the New Zealand fleet, provided we get the right choice around participation model and the timing of our entry. Very good. Well, uh, there's just one other topic that I want to raise um, with you, if I might, and that is... Um, Around the world, the issue of how countries deal with their indigenous people seems mm. to my mind to be rising up the agenda. And it rises up the agenda very often, very specifically 
uh, in the energy sector, whether it's the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, whether it's the, um, the the coastal pipeline in Canada with the Wet'suwet'en people who are protesting. Uh, I mean, this is not a new issue, right? We had, uh, you know, mm. Ken Sarah, we were uh, the and the um, the uh, the Niger Delta back in the nineteen uh, what would that be the nineteen nineties. Um, mm. I will say one of the things I was struck by when I came down to visit you in New Zealand was. Not that everything is perfect and rosy, but it did seem to be a more mature discussion with your own indigenous people, with the Maori. And of course, we've now got a Maori woman uh, as foreign minister. So uh, am I right in, in, in ascribing leadership to New Zealand? I mean, do I think, is, is it correct? Is it your impression as well that, that New Zealand leads on these issues? And, uh, and how much of your time do you spend thinking about them? Yeah, I think on a relative basis, New Zealand would be a, a leader in this area. As you observe, there are things that are not going well in our country with our with our indigenous people. Um, you know, they over-index and you know, all the the downside parts of the economy. You know, poverty, crime, etc. So we've got we've got our challenges, but relatively we're better off. I think in New Zealand, what we benefited from actually is uh, what we call the Treaty of Waitangi, which is the agreement between at the time the British Crown and all of the tribes of New Zealand. So actually there's a contract that exists, whereas many other, if you like, colonizations that have taken place, there was never a contract. And that Treaty of Waitangi um, is often referred to as the framework for the way in which we deal with many issues, whether they be uh, settling uh, issues from the past or determining the way in which we address things in the future. I think the other thing is that New Zealand is uh, a super diverse country and by that, I mean, we've got something like 150 nationalities in New Zealand. And of course, the, the Māori population is about 15% of, of our population. So you, we've got to be careful our super diversity doesn't swamp, you know, as you say, the indigenous people. So with that in mind, I think there is something, and I, I was about to use the word renaissance. I don't think we're ever particularly strong at this, but there is a particular affection or in touch with our Māori heritage. So, you know, for example, I grew up and I was never taught Māori at school. Uh, whereas now I'm, I think, expected and quite rightly to be able to speak um, te reo, as we call it, the Māori language, uh, in, in formal settings when I would welcome a group. Um, so I think things it's becoming much more normalised, and I think that in itself makes it more inclusive. And there are um, there are about I think there's 14 Māori values or tikanga Māori as, as it's described, and many of those are really really appropriate for the challenges that the world faces today. So one of those values is what we call kaitiakitanga which we would translate as being stewardship. Now, yeah, climate change is all about stewardship. So I think the value of kaitiakitanga and what that really means in New Zealand, I think is an extremely uh, useful set of guide rails or, or uh, ways of thinking and how we deal with some of the big issues in New Zealand, whether it you know, be structural issues like you know, the economy or more strategic issues like how do we transition to this zero carbon future we all want to get to. Yes, and, and so I, I definitely, um, you know, from my, my visit and my conversations, I, you know, I was just um, very struck by uh, the different level of respect that there is for the Indigenous people, even though, as, as I said, it's, it's not perfect. Uh, and the, some of those values that I was able to just see, you know, in operation, even in a short visit, um, and, and certainly, um, you know, as I travel around, you know, you say that, you know, New Zealand has this... Um, 
the, the treaty and the rule of law between the, the, the indigenous people mm. and what was then the British. But, you know, of course, there are those treaties in the US and Oklahoma, uh, it's just been discovered, has been uh, infringing that treaty with its oil and gas development. Mm. But really, almost nobody really expects that to be taken seriously. So that's definitely something that seems to be more, more positive in New Zealand and something that New Zealand can definitely perhaps um, impart to the world. Yeah, we actually, I, probably going a little bit on my competence, but I think back in the 1970s, the government of the time established what's called the Waitangi Tribunal, which is essentially the, uh, for want of a better expression, the the, the body that oversees it, uh, you know, or overviews adherence to the treaty. So as you, as you say, it could be in some jurisdictions, you can get away with it because no one's watching you. Whereas here, there is a statutory appointed body that monitors compliance with the treaty. And of course, there's quite a lot of activity that they get involved in. I think that is probably something that helps is there is effectively a compliance function for want of a better phrase at work around that agreement. Well, yes, although I suspect that that only works and has life if it, if it is built on a foundation of respect. Uh, and that's what I, 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 I think I observed and, uh, uh, and I hope I observed and, and hopefully would spread uh, from there. Mike, it's a great pleasure talking to you. Um, I, I could go on, I'd love to, but unfortunately we're reaching uh, the end of our, uh, of our allotted time. Um, so I really appreciate the time you spent at the beginning of your day. Um, I think hopefully the audience will have seen uh, some of the leadership that you've shown and they'll have uh, appreciation for that. Um, and I wish you luck uh, in you know, those balance, that balancing act that you talked about, the balancing the COVID response, the company strategic response, and also continuing to show that much needed uh, leadership within the business community in New Zealand. And hopefully that can uh, spread a little bit around the world. So thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you. Kia ora. Kia ora, Mike. So that was Mike Bennett, CEO of Z Energy in New Zealand, also founder of the Climate Leaders Coalition, one of the great climate leaders in business of the Southern Hemisphere. My guest next week on Cleaning Up is a very dear friend, Richenda Van Leeuwen. I first met her when she was working for the UN Foundation. She is one of the world's great experts on climate actions in the developing world at a very distributed and local basis. We're talking about things like clean cook stoves and solar roofs. She's been at the Rocky Mountain Institute recently in charge of Africa and islands. Uh, and now she is executive director of the Aspen Network of Development Entrepreneurs. Richendra is also my partner on something called Project Bow. A few years ago, we got together to provide a resilient solar and battery-based power supply for a neonatal intensive care unit in the city of Bow in Sierra Leone. Please join me this time next week, same time, same place, for a conversation with Richenda Van Leeuwen. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review on your podcast platform Give us a five-star review if it's Apple Podcasts or give us a thumbs up on YouTube. It helps to get the word out. So you don't miss any future episodes. You can sign up to get alerts in a number of different ways. Go to 
cleaningup.live. You can sign up for an email, or of course, you can follow Cleaning Up on Twitter. The handle is at MLCleaningUp, at MLCleaningUp. Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation, for whose support we are very, very grateful. Thank you.